Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. This is Wade here flying solo in the podcast studio as part of our COVID-19 online learning series recording today on theology or for theology 442 history of the reformations and today we're going to be back in the Carter Lindbergh book the European reformations and we're going to be wrapping up that book today as we get to the final chapter which is legacies of the reformations and this is a very interesting chapter and one worth consideration um from a variety of perspectives. And so students, depending on what their major is, might have a, uh, a lot of different things that they can take away from it. But I wanna focus especially on what confessionalization means, what it was um, as we think of it historically, um, what the theory of it is, how it operates, um, <clears throat> and then some of the, the broader developments that took place with the second generation reformers um, after the death of Zwingli and Luther and Kelvin. And so that's what I'll be focusing especially on. And then I'll give a, just a little outline of some other points that Lindbergh brings up for our listeners. But students, you should make sure you're reading on those and, uh, and taking notes. So uh, when we're talking about confessionalization, the way Lindbergh is going to define it is as follows. He says, confessionalization designates the fragmentation of the unitary Christendom, Christianitas Latina, of the Middle Ages into at least three confessional churches, Lutheran, Calvinistic or Reformed, and post-Tridentine Roman Catholic. Uh, and so what we're talking about is the development of increased boundaries, so externally increased boundaries uh, between these churches, and not just theological boundaries, but what will become social and cultural and even sometimes economic boundaries as well. Um, but then... Uh, attempts to assert <clears throat> or uh, maybe less aggressively cultivate an internal coherence within those territories um, that had a, a unified confession as well. On that confession, when I say unified, often unified on paper, uh, but attempts to make sure that, that people were inculcated with that, that the um, social and cultural norms were in line with these confessional principles or documents. And so then Lindbergh goes on early on to talk about the theory of confessionalization then. And he says, confessionalization theory relates to the concept of social discipline. The view that during the late 16th century, uh, the churches mentioned above joined forces with their respective states. And he has that in quotation marks because in some cases to talk about nations or states at this time, depending on what we're talking about and where, that can be ana anachronistic, but um, that these churches mentioned above joined forces with their respective states, albeit under state control, to educate and discipline their people in their respective confessions. And so there'll be a number of different ways that this happens in different territories and places um, and across time. But this is confessionalization then is the development of uh, Lutheranism as a thing. Um, the Reformed Church as a thing in certain territories, um, post-Tridentine Catholicism as a thing, and post-Tridentine Catholicism that's not just Catholicism, but is now Roman Catholicism, right? It's defined over against other things. Uh, keep in mind that 
we Lutherans, for instance, still claim to be Catholic, small c Catholic. Um, in fact, we would say our confession is the apostolic and small c Catholic confession. So Roman uh, being added there to delineate that. Um, so the Roman Catholic Church as well becomes a denomination, so to speak, uh, during this time. A big driving force behind this, a large part of it, will be the fact that as first-generation reformers die off, um, second-generation reformers will take their place. And these are often um, reformers who had not lived through all of the conflicts that led to the respective reformations in the lands that they were in or the places uh, that they served at. Um, but they were very much shaped by the theology um, and the culture and the, the educational systems and the institutions that came out of <coughs> those reformations. Um, and so you have an increased loyalty uh, to the church fathers, if we want to speak of it that way, um, of those confessions. Um, and when I speak about those confessions, early on I might speak of confessions and mean largely what those church fathers wrote, um, meaning their confession of the faith. Um, but confessions here increasingly will, will mean documents that are um, put together to define what it is to be a Roman Catholic or what it is to be Reformed or what it is to be Lutheran. Now, some of this begins already during the time of the first-generation Reformers. For instance, Calvin and Bo uh, Bullinger worked on confessions. Um, Luther writes uh, the large and small catechism, uh, catechisms, which will end up in the Book of Concord. Um, in 1530, right, the Augsburg Confession is presented, and then the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. But it's going to take until the 1570s and 1580 for these documents to really be collected and produced in um, what will be called the, the Book of Concord, uh, which is the official book of the confessions of the Lutheran Church, for instance, um, the formula of Concord kind of being the, the final and, and kind of most in-depth, uh, if we want to speak that way, uh, of the confessions uh, that will, will round those out. Um, the same as with Roman Catholicism, right? Trent will take place after most of the first generation reformers are done, and the catechisms and statements that come out of Trent or the institutions that come out of it will come at an even later uh, time, and we talked about that with the O'Malley readings. Um, concurrent then with the development of these uh, delineations theologically um, and institutionally within the church, ecclesiastically we might say, you're also going to have then the growing um, development of states, of early modern states, which will eventually turn into what we think of as, as modern states. The boundaries are very different now. Um, for instance, we speak of Germans um, in the 16th century, but there was no Germany. Germany comes much later. Most people don't realize Germany, as we know it today, is a much younger nation, um, even before the borders are redrawn after World War I and World War II, the Germany that predated that um, is a much younger nation, <coughs> if we want to speak of nation uh, in the modern sense, than the United States of America, for instance. Um, but as this, this process develops, you're going to have internal battles within those churches 
um, those confessions for, for what exactly, as part of this confessionalization process, what exactly these confessions should affirm or deny, what exactly it means to be loyal to the legacy of those first-generation reformers. And in Lutheranism especially, this got very contentious, and I won't go into this too much because I get into it in the book we're doing to wrap out the semester, which is my book, An Uncompromising Gospel. Um, but it gets so contentious that, that um, Melanchthon himself can com complain about the, the rabies, the rabies theologorum, the madness or rabies of the theologians, um, this competitiveness that could take place. Um, sometimes uh, Lindbergh refers to this sometimes as being like a siege mentality. Uh, the growth of the state then and these kind of um, development of ecclesiastical institutions go hand in hand uh, wherever there was magisterial reform, right? Reform with the support of the magistrate or the governing authorities. And Lindbergh will point out that in some ways this uh, rationalizing of uh, of the faith that took place in this confessionalization process in some places, um, and I, I don't want to oversimplify this, and, and I think some, at some points perhaps the book maybe does, um, but the growth of the state hand-in-hand in, hand in that, uh, Lindbergh will point out, you can see how that perhaps made the enlightenment that would follow po uh, more possible, and especially the growth of the, um, the notion of need for toleration as you have places where different confessions of the faith, people who hold them, have to be able to live and work and operate together. Excuse me, got to caffeinate. <coughs> um, which he, he says will eventually give way to what we think of today, a modern legacy of this would be um, pluralism, for instance, in the West. Um, but also this kind of connection in Protestant countries of state and church a little bit, he says, as well, too. And I think there's something to this. Um, we see it in America, uh, what he calls chosen nation syndrome, um, the idea of the state church almost fostering this notion of we're the ones uh, on whose side God truly uh, uh, is. Um, and, w and we see this in America with American exceptionalism, um, you know, the shining city on a hill, uh, try to move the American flag, you know, out of the chancel, uh, and you'll learn quickly um, how our own people can, can hold to these things. Uh, another development that will take place is the question of resistance or resistance theory, and this will be important for uh, the centuries that follow. And Lindbergh rightly points out, uh, uh, most of, or a lot of or most of what the work I do has to do with the city of Magdeburg that is referenced on page 352, and we'll get into more this more on uh, in an uncompromising gospel. But Lindbergh does a good job here of pointing out, usually when people think about resistance theory, they think of that uh, as developing among the reform, that it was the Calvinists who came up with the notion that you could resist the state sometimes, uh, especially that the lesser magistrate, for instance, a governor could resist the president if the president was acting unconstitutionally or against, uh, you know, um, the, I, I, I don't want to get too much into it now, but if... Uh, they were were acting tyrannically. Um, so this lesser magistrate doctrine, it's sometimes called, that's usually credited to the Reformed, but it actually develops very early on with the Magdeburg Confession in Magdeburg, um, which is going to take place around 1550, 1551. And here will be uh, a section, especially for students who are interested in, I know some are discussing or working on, um, you know, 
the claim sometimes that there's a line that you can draw between Luther and Nazism. I think Lindbergh is very fair on this, and he actually points out that, that those who resisted the Nazis in Germany and in Norway and elsewhere often did so using the Lutheran doctrine of resistance or, or at least appealing to it and appealing to um, statements of Luther him, himself at times. Um, so this kind of Shire myth, I'll call it, William Shire is the rise and fall of the Third Reich, that somehow you can just draw a line between Hitler and no one being willing to disobey the state. Uh, I mean, Luther and then no one being willing to disobey the state and then Hitler. That, that's um, it's very uh, oversimplified. It's often anachronistic, not understanding the differences in how things were governed or the state operated in Luther's time versus the 20th century. Um, and it's not always uh, very attentive to the actual history and, and to the to the text. Um, so that may be a section that's of interest to people who are coming from that background. I do want to hit on some of the cultural developments that took place because of confessionalization, especially among the Protestants. And here especially uh, amongst, uh, I would say, uh, the Lutherans and, and then somewhat the Reformed. Uh, the first being uh, that Lindbergh points out that the doctrine of justification by faith alone released energy for this world that had hitherto been de uh, devoted to achieving uh, the next world. And then he goes on and he's going to talk about vocation without, um, you know, having a long section subheaded vocation, where he's going to say um, all mundane tasks from changing diapers to changing laws were imbued with religious significance, not because human works are salvatory, but because God intends neighbors to be served. And here um, it's important to understand that this does lead eventually to a flurry of um, religious art and music. And I think this is true in, in Roman Catholic lands as well, although they have a different understanding of vocation and don't hold the justification by grace through faith. But you will see a, a flurry of cultural products, if we want to speak of it that way, I don't really like that word, <coughs> artifacts maybe, um, that are produced as a result of the confessionalization process in those lands. But among Protestants, it'll be noted, especially um, the doctrine of vocation that we're saved by grace through faith. And now God puts us in whatever station to be able to serve our neighbor, which dignifies that station in which we're operating, that this does lead um, to cultural legacies that still exist today. In, in fact, um, in, in many parts of Protestant Europe, um, you will see uh, various jobs held in much higher esteem um, and celebrated in a way that they often aren't in America, where we tend to take jobs and celebrate them merely according to salary. The, the coronavirus has improved that a little bit, somewhat, because we, we recognize, um, you know, without a whole host of different vocations, we'd be in big trouble. Um, and the essential workers aren't always the ones with the biggest salaries right now. Um, but this will be an important development that takes place. As far as the reformations in women, uh, this is another section I think students will find helpful and very much worth reading, especially students who are working on papers that have to deal with this. Um, an interesting argument just to, to bring up um, for students to be aware of um, and to make sure they, they pay some attention to in their note taking is it there, there is this important argument that a number of historians have made uh, that in losing the convents, um, many women lost a chance to be um, autonomous in ways that they maybe weren't otherwise able to be when it came to their education, when it came to their daily life. Um, and so there are a lot of debates about how was the loss of convents in Protestant territories 
received? Was it a setback for women or was it a benefit for them? Um, and then on the flip side of that, the argument that basically um, the spiritual life of the Christian became centered in the home with the Reformation, kind of the family altar, the catechisms given to the head of the household. And so this solidifies kind of um, what some historians will call, you know, the middle class bourgeois view um, of the of the household, and that becomes the woman's primary place um, economically as well. Uh, these are important arguments that people have debated and they go back and forth on, um, but they are worth considering. And, and and in some ways, there's 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 truth to each of those those arguments. I would I would say. Um, Lindbergh includes in here a very good section too, warning against anachronism, um, both as we talk about uh, the reformations and the uh, confessionalization and women or and um, others and as others he'll talk about um, you know the Jews or, or different ethnic groups, stuff like that, um, is that we want to be very careful to understand that none of the people at this time had experienced the 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th, or 21st century. Um, sometimes we can be historically misogynistic, so to speak, um, or historically uh, um, prejudiced. Uh, um, it maybe be a better way to put it. Uh, as we look at um, the past, uh, we can't judge the past by developments that had not taken place yet at that time. Although it is surely fair to look at the past and say, well, I would rather live now than then if someone comes to that conclusion, obviously. Um, but Lindbergh does a good job of saying, well, where is there misogyny and where isn't there? Where is misogyny um, rightly, um, you know, called out? Where isn't it necessarily rightly called out um, because of the danger of anachronism? And so I think that's a helpful section. I think Lindbergh has been helpful throughout the book with warning against anachronism. Um, you know, the, the the funniest thing to me about anachronism is it's basically taking as virtue something that we actually didn't ev do, right? We, we just happened to be born when we were born. Um, so I'm not necessarily smarter than someone in the past because I have an iPhone or indoor plumbing, right? Um, those are things that simply weren't available to them. That's not an accomplishment I have I have made. Um, so the... the um, the section on the other is also worth looking at. I've done um, a fair amount of work on that myself, especially um, with the Jews as other uh, in, in confessionalization. Um, and I think it's it's helpful for looking at and keeping in mind. And then as far as the economics and education and science, um, we simply understand that uh, sometimes people will look back and say, well, the Protestants surely must have been you know, free market capitalists because that's what we tend to think of with Protestantism today, especially in America, uh, and that simply isn't the case. Um, Luther and Calvin were big opponents of capitalism in, in many ways, um, but at the same time, uh, the Reformations did lead to the growth of capitalism. Um, Max Weber has his kind of famous thesis about this um, in his work, The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism, and, and all this time since it was first written, uh, there is still, uh, people haven't tired of debating that thesis, um, that vocation basically led to the growth of, of capitalism. And so when it comes to economics here, we have to avoid be, um, being too simplistic as well. 
Um, literature and the arts is another section in there that, that um, I think can be helpful. But I would simply echo what I've already said. I don't want to go too long with this. So I would echo what I've already said, that uh, people were freed somewhat to, uh, to flourish in a way um, in the music and the arts that was conducive with flourishing in, in the social and cultural and economic spheres in general um, because of the Reformation. And there was increased state sponsorship um, of such ventures in a number of places and at a number of times. Um, so as far as the legacy of the Reformation, I would, I would simply close out by saying um, everyone living today in the West, whether they're originally from the West or not, um, is in many ways a child of the Reformation, whether they're Roman Catholic or Protestant or an atheist or a Buddhist um, or a Hindu or a Muslim. Um, things like democracy. Uh, Luther and Calvin don't institute democracy, but they do democratizing things, right? There's clear impacts that they have. Um, public education. Uh, neither of them begin public education as we know it today, but they do begin public education as a notion um, and the increased education of the, the public. Um, the list could go on and on, um, but we can't escape our past and understand our present, even if we disagree with our past at times, um, involves engaging our, our past. We recognize that in our individual lives. If someone has had some trauma, um, right, you go to get counseling to deal with your past so that you can better live um, in your present. Uh, there's the growth of things like Ancestry.com uh, where we want to understand where we come from when it comes to our DNA. Um, well, the same is true with our past, theologically, socially, culturally, historically. Um, these things are, are just intertwined. Uh, and so uh, I think it's a very helpful chapter, and I hope students, you get something out of it. Um, listeners, I hope I made some sense as we went. We're going to be done with the Lindbergh book, and then for this class, all we'll have last left is an uncompromising gospel. And I'm hoping to talk about that with Dr. Berg, so it's not just me talking about my own book. Um, but we can have some back and forth between uh, he and I. <coughs> uh, and then the only COVID online learning sessions we'll have left after that will be for my 110 class. Um, Mike and I will be recording on Bo Geert's, um very worthwhile novel, um, the, uh, the Hammer of God. Hope everyone is doing well. It's kind of a rainy day here in Milwaukee today, um, but most of us are staying inside, so I guess it's not as big a deal as it otherwise might be. I hope you're staying healthy. I hope you're staying safe um, and uh, staying sane. And most of all, I hope you are with me continuing to let the bird fly.